I'm joined once again by Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Intelligence. Danielle, so great to have you back. Jack, it's great to be with you. I, I cannot tell you about the caliber of feedback that I get from all over the world when I go on with you. So people are just highly complimenting. They're like, he brings out all of it in you, Danielle. I'm like, okay. That can be dangerous, but okay. Well, I'm getting similarly positive reviews about you. People love you. And you know that's why we're actually doing a partnership where uh, folks can get access to your uh, QI Pro institutional research product uh, with a discount of $1,000. So folks interested in that should check the link in the description and stay tuned where we'll talk about it later on. But Danielle, I, I just want to begin. You, you're really sticking your neck out there, uh, expecting that inflation will continue to fall. Many, many people are in the uh, higher for longer camp. Inflation will be sticky. You, not so much. You say inflation will continue to go, and you're saying you're seeing leading indicators that inflation will continue to fall sharply as it has over the past nine months. Tell us what led you to that view. So inflation uh, comes in so many forms and has so many uh, sources that feed it. Uh, I, I think what's important to remember is when the Fed started tightening, what had already transpired? What caused the inflation to begin with? It started with the trade war and that first Trump tweet way back years and years ago. That's when the supply chain disruption began. And then it was amplified and completely exploded after the pandemic hit. On top of that supply chain disruption, then you had trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus printed, directly deposited into people's checking accounts. You bypass the banking system. That's why Ben Bernanke could never hit that 2% target because the stimulus was going through the banking system to households, to companies. What the stimulus did was bypass the banking system. No credit check. We're just giving you money. And you know what? People spent it. So the inflation that proved so elusive to Ben Bernanke exploded when the transmission mechanism was removed. And by the way, the Fed was the enabler monetizing every last penny of those trillions of dollars. By the time the Fed stepped in and started tightening, the supply chain disruption had been mostly unwound, which is disinflationary. And the fiscal stimulus, right, that third large fiscal check was mailed out in April of 2021. Fed didn't start hiking until March of 2022. So they were they were too low for too long. But by the time they got to the party in March of 2022, most of the disinflationary pressures had already filtered through and started to bring inflation down. So what the Fed did was basically add insult to injury. In fact, I would argue that the Fed's tightening policy, Jack, has been inflationary to housing. How does that make any sense? Well, people are locked into 2.5% fixed rate mortgages. So when the Fed started tightening, you exacerbated the unaffordability aspect by making those payments even higher against the backdrop of people who will not sell their homes. So now we wait. And, and this is where we get into the different components of inflation. But it's really important to understand that when the Fed started tightening, what they ended up doing was curtailing housing worse. Made, made, they made housing more unaffordable than it was. And at the same time, curtailed business investment because a credit crunch followed them. So now you've cut investment off. So the 
Fed policy right now is actually harming the economy, but not in ways that normal tightening would. They're not taking the heat off of inflation. That was already done when the supply chain was undisrupted. That was done when the U.S. government stopped handing people free money. So core inflation, you, you know the numbers, is still running at you know, 4 or 5% if you on, on an annualized basis, I think around 5, 5%. So that's not including energy. So if you have all these you know, in, in, uh, inflation, disinflationary forces in the pipeline, how come core inflation is still uh, you know, well above 2%? And also, we should note that the when people say inflation has fallen like a rock, so much of that, as you know, is base effects of you're comparing June 2023 to June 2022 when the price of oil was uh, $120 and now it's 70. So that's it's really you know a relative game. Whereas on the month over month basis, it's, it's much more accurate. And on that month over month basis and the three month annualized basis, core inflation is still sticky. So what has led to that in core inflation being sticky, and why do you expect it will stop sticking very soon? So we had this big pop in January and February in Mannheim. Auto dealerships were anticipating a very robust in individual income tax refund season that never manifested. But that doesn't matter. They got they they increased their lines of credit. They they went hauling into auctions, overpaying for cars, pushing that Mannheim index up in January and February. That flows through to the CPI in a big way with a two-month lag. And that's why we saw last month, we saw that 4.4% print on used car inflation, even though used car prices have now been falling and they will continue to fall according to what Cox is telling us right now. I mean, if you look at what you just pulled up, total uh, retail inventories, this is fresh data that we got out. Look at inventories without cars. That green line includes cars. That's a hockey stick. Those are dealerships having their lots refilled. And that's why we're seeing incentive spending double off of what it was last year. But non-auto retailers, uh, retail inventories, that yellow line, they've already peaked and started to come down. We're going to see that increasingly because you heard from the CEO of General Mills who said the word, the catchword, the global catchword right now, destocking, destocking. Customers are holding less inventory. We're seeing not just a reversal of going from just in time to just in case hoarding inventory. We're seeing a correction beyond that to now where they're holding less inventory than they did prior to the pandemic. And this is something that an entire generation of operation managers have never had to deal with. They've never had to account for financing in real time. This is your shortest term financing, which by the way is your most expensive. They've never had to finance their, the inventory on hand. So their bosses are telling them, get rid of this stuff until final demand comes through. Craig Fuller, my good friend at Freight Waves, hmm. has been saying it ain't happening. Inventories are not coming back. We see this through freight. And by the way, we're starting to see high-end consumption turn. He tweeted that out a few days ago. I followed up with him and he's like, it's happening, Danielle. That's a big deal. But again, what we're seeing this flow through to is destocking. When customers are holding less inventory than they had before, supply demand, you're seeing the reversal and then some of the supply shock that created inflation. Whether you're talking about small businesses, service, the service sector, or the manufacturing sector, I had like a triple chart of those three mm -hmm. in the views of the 
the, the, the vendors supplying all three sectors of the economy, they view their customers' inventories as being too low compared to long-term. There you go. Those red dotted lines, those are the long-term averages for these data sets. And as you can see, we have gone below those levels across the board. That's de-stocking. So... And it needs to say, nearly none of this has to do with the monetary system, how much money there is, the cost of that money, interest rates, things that the Federal Reserve has a lot of control over. This is all in the real economy, real stuff, not ones and zeros on screen. So it's the narrative that there used to be far nowhere near enough stuff to meet the demand. Uh, uh, cars needed these semiconductors, these advanced chips that were simply were not coming into place. So everyone wanted a car and no one could get one. Is mm-hmm. Are you saying that right now we have the exact opposite of that? We have the exact opposite. We actually have a glut in the semiconductors that are used to make cars. Again, we've had a full reversal and then some. Now we have too much supply and too little demand chasing it. That's disinflationary by definition. And by the way, Fed policy does influence destocking to the extent, again, that you have to finance the inventory you're holding at the shortest rates. That's operating finance. That's the highest money that you can spend to carry inventory. So there's a double incentive to get rid of it because the demand's not there and it's, it's, it's expensive to carry it. Danielle, now let's move on to another sector, which is housing. Mm-hmm. So many people, including myself, said, oh, uh, mortgage rates go from 3% to 7%. That must really crush demand for housing. It kind of hasn't. And we're actually seeing uh, you know, uh, housing prices continue, uh, go up after, after, after falling down. Because people who are living in their houses and they have a super low mortgage rate, they don't want to move because they'll get out of that mortgage. So people who want to buy houses have to go to the new home market, the home builders. Uh, those stocks are on a tear, by the way. And so I want to ask you about that. And that's how the bullish narrative, the optimistic, the green sort of shoots narrative. But there's also something much more dire in the multifamily world. Uh, in the single family hold, as well as particularly Airbnb. So uh, tell us, what are we looking at right now for, for folks who are listening to this on a podcast, as well as people who are kind of having to squint and, and look at this, this table? Because this really is uh, quite alarming and interesting. It is. It's fascinating. Uh, I mean, if you want to take a vacation in the Poconos, go for it. The price to rent an Airbnb is down by more than any county in the country in Monroe County, where the Poconos is uh, in Pennsylvania down 52% year over year. Now, the difference between the organic homeowner in the Poconos is that they've got this mortgage at 2.5%. They've got equity built up in their house. I call them the Airbnb jocks. They did not put down maybe 15% down payments, and they can get around some of that. And the mortgage that they that was underwritten was predicated on cash flow and constant cash flow, by the way, in order to service the debt. So people say that this housing market is completely different than the housing market in 2006. That's correct. You don't have a bunch of subprime borrowers, but you have, there's another chart that shows this baton handoff between organic home sellers not putting their homes on the market and the sheer number of Airbnb rentals that are out there. That's that that's in the slide deck that that accompanied that um, in the quill. So to, to you know, Airbnb, uh, this one, that one. Yep. yep. So you get nine hundred and thirty six thousand Airbnbs for rent. And um, it, and, and that is what we call 
shadow inventory. If the people, most of whom own multiple homes, right? Uh, uh, Starwood just sold, I think, 2,000 homes to invitation, invitation homes. So they're getting out of the business. But you've got this massive overhang of inventory and people relying on their cash flow year over year not being down 40% or 50%. And yet that's what we have. And in fact, if you look at the, the largest uh, uh, counties across the nation, I think there are 135 of them or so, on average, Airbnb year over year rental is down 29% because the, the, it, the supply has, is just a deluge. It's the exact opposite of what we're seeing in existing home inventories, but it's sitting there. They're vacant. The owners are desperately trying to turn them from short-term rentals. You can, you can rent this vacation home for a week to six month or 12 month leases, trying to lock money in, but you don't get the same cash flow generated there. It's disinflationary. And that's why the, the report that accompanied those two charts that came out earlier this week was so explosive because the title said Airbnb owners are about to sell. Now that inventory will hit alongside rising joblessness. So natural homeowners, death, divorce, taxes, property taxes are going through the roof. Floridians are choking on property insurance premiums that have gone just skyrocketed. And trying to pay these property taxes, 65% of people who bought a home in 2022 and 2023 have reported that they cannot afford their mortgage payments. Forget carrying the cost of the house. God forbid your air conditioner, your furnace goes out. Um, but, but, but this is just carrying the simple payment because they bought at such high price points. Got it. So tell us about the, the labor market. The unemployment rate officially now stands at 3.7%. Mm -hmm. Nowhere near a traditionally a recession level, although actually recessions start when unemployment is much lower than I had thought. And initial claims is at 239,000, uh, you know, which is where it was in 2018, 2019. So the official data does not point to stress in the labor market, but you are tracking a lot of uh, non-mainstream metrics that point a very, very different story. Tell us about, about those. Well, remember, uh, initial claimants, especially in a, in, a, in a week that contains a holiday, which Juneteenth was, so you've got your distortions there. What we track at Quill is not seasonally adjusted continuing claims. These are the number of individuals who have applied for jobless benefits. Those are your initial claimants and been approved. So they're the ones who are collecting unemployment. And right now, and in April, and in May, and in June. Economists call one month a potential aberration. Three months is a trend. And this is impossible to see on the screen, I understand, but that green line across the top shows you that for three months in a row, 90% of the U.S. population has been living in a state with rising continuing claimants. There are only three states, Hawaii, Kansas, and Oklahoma, that you see on the bottom of the screen, you see those red numbers go all the way across the bottom of the screen. Red is good. Red means year over year, continuing claims are down. That's what you want to be. That's where you want to live, where the job market is the tightest. But Hawaii is about to flip. That is a huge bellwether. It's the most resistant state in the nation to joblessness. 
because it's such a, a travel Mecca and it's not a travel Mecca in some season. You can always go to Maui, but Hawaii's about to flip, leaving us with just Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, I'm going to put a call in. Tom Honig, a good friend of mine, was kind enough to introduce me to Esther George. Once she's out of the Kansas City Fed, I'm going to call her up and say, what's going on? What, what, what's in the water? That those two particular states are so resilient and we haven't seen continuing claims flip into the positive as we have seen for most of the rest of the nation. And that's what people need to focus on. When you've got continuing claims rising in your state, that means you know somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody who's lost their job. And they're, they didn't get a new job, more importantly. That's what that shows. That's right. That, that they're continuing claimants. They collect unemployment benefits week in and week out. So what would you say to someone who says, Danielle, look, I, lo I love your work. You follow this stuff, but facts are facts. And the unemployment rate is 3.7%. How can you say the labor market is as dire as you say when uh, workers themselves are saying the labor market remains tight? Uh, some companies themselves are saying the labor market remains tight. The Fed is saying the labor market remains tight. And the unemployment rate, as lagging as it is, is at 3.7%. So I particularly want you to kind of attack and hold nothing back. Uh, about the BLS data. You've been you know, yeah. uh, critiquing it, but make this the official time that you really uh, uh, critique the BLS and you think the data is, is, is wrong and why it's wrong. I think the data is painfully corrupted, actually. And don't take it from me. Take it from 81-year-old Lacey Hunt, my mentor. He and I have had multiple discussions. He's been in the business since the 60s. He's been watching these data since the 60s. He's a big fan of the statistical agencies, by the way. And has always been close to the statisticians and respected the work, but he's never seen anything like this. He's never seen that for the last 12 months, 37% of all jobs created are due to an imputation called the birth death model. 37% of your headline non-farm payrolls. That's a huge number with in the backdrop, chapter 11 filings across small, medium, and large companies more than double year over year. How can you say, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that 37% of the jobs created in the last 12 months have been due to new business formation when your bankruptcy cycle is the worst since 2009? It's specious data that will be re revised away. And in addition to that, you're not picking up on what I follow at dailyjobcuts.com. And that is small businesses. The CFO survey came out yesterday. It's a combination between uh, Duke University and, and the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. And you've got, you've got CFOs in the country saying that, that, that by 2024, they're going to be drastically reducing headcount. And they also reported that 40% of small business CFOs cannot access financing. So we're seeing these small businesses go away one after another after another. But if you hang your own shingle, you're not going to go file a jobless claim against yourself. It doesn't make any sense. But will you show up in the data? Nope, you won't. So there are signs that there are, there are certain aspects of the economy that will be picked up in revisions, but that are not being reflected today and the, the best characterization was from a buddy of mine, Peter Shear, um, who said, I understand that the massive pool of economists that Bloomberg queries once a month, I get that they can all be wrong for a month here and a month there. 
but he asked the question rhetorically, what are the odds that for 14 months in a row, they're all wrong, that none of their models work, that the BLS's models have some, some special sauce in them that, that the street doesn't have access to? The forecasts have all been wrong for 14 months in a row? Speaking of statisticians, that's statistically impossible. And we will see these numbers revised away. The problem is, it takes a year. Okay, so a, a few things uh, that would be a, a separated difference between where you think the labor market is, the true health, which you don't, you think is not that healthy, and where the official data is, which indicates that it is healthy. So number one is that it's lagging. No one disputes that. Uh, number two is that there are a lot of sole proprietorships or small businesses owners, small business owners that they're kind of employing themselves. They're you know they're an entrepreneur. And if their business goes down, they're not filing for unemployment. Number three, tell us about the birth death ratio. I've heard that a few times, but I really don't understand that. So that was what I was saying, the 37% of jobs created. It is an imputation based on the past five years of data and the tendency during a boom time in the U.S. economy to form a new business. So on average... The Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying that, that business formation is far exceeding business death, that births are far exceeding deaths, and that ergo 37% of the jobs that have been created, that 37% of what, 300,000 jobs in any given month are created because new businesses are being formed net-net compared to new businesses that go away. That's an imputation. It's a calculation. It's a guess. And it's Right now, it's it's telling you the opposite of what Chapter 11 filings in real time are telling you on a month-to-month -month basis. Epic Bankruptcy has reported that whether you're talking about Chapter 11, individual household households filing, regardless of the cohort, your bankruptcy filings are more than double year over year. That's why the birth death model is clearly lying to us. And yet, it makes for great headlines on, on Saturday morning, you know, and... and Bidenomics is working. Uh, so where do you think we are in the economic cycle? If the blue chip consensus of where growth is going to be right now is just under 1%, whereas the Atlanta Fed GDP now estimate has it at 2%. And a lot of these models have been consistently revised upwards, both because of growth, perhaps. Again, I really don't, you know, not familiar with this, but I imagine also because of declining inflation, because it's real GDP quarter over quarter. So Declining inflation itself actually can be sort of stimulative. So if you think if, if, if GDP now is at real GDP is at 2%, we're not in a recession now. So was are we in a recession now? Uh, why was this data wrong? Were we in a recession in 2022 when we had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, but that was real because if we had a huge oil spike? Or have we not had the recession yet at all? And it's going to be in 2024 and it's uh, going to be a big one. So two things are going on here. And actually, if you could put up a slide that you put up a few minutes ago that showed autos. Mm -hmm. So industrial production, net of the auto sector, which was delayed in recovering because it was waiting for semiconductors. This is the right-hand chart. If you look at the purple line, industrial production, excluding autos, has been in recession since April of 2022. I'm in Indiana. You, you can't you can't go to a local restaurant without hearing the people talk about this or that factory shutting down. That's the rest of the industrial economy that's been in recession since April of 2022. But you don't see that because you've had this catch up effect with automobiles that people cannot afford to buy now. 
And yet there we are, that, that baby, that, 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 that turquoise line right there reflects the auto catch up. So that's one huge source. And then you look inside construction, for example, where is the construction coming from? Well, I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's coming from the Inflation Reduction Act, which is pouring money into electric vehicle production and frankly, non-productive green efforts that will do nothing for the economy in the long term. However, they certainly give a boost to those construction numbers. And mathematically speaking, we're also seeing global trade turn down in GDP math, that's actually a plus sign. So you see that if we're importing less, that that consumption, that, that actually reflects lower demand for consumption. We want less stuff from China if imports are going down, but that actually backs into GD math, G- GDP math as a positive. For import countries, for China, it wouldn't, but for US, it does, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. But if you ne- if you look inside the, the trade data, we're actually seeing contracting trade, falling exports and falling imports. This reflects the fact that Germany is, I could not believe Christine Lagarde was up on stage and publicly said, publicly corrected a reporter and said, no, no, we're not in recession. I'm like, Chicky, you were negative 0.1% in Q4 of 2022, and you're negative 0.1% in Q. Q1 of 2023 and the German manufacturing sector and what's happening in Austria, which is 17% manufacturing that compares to the United States, which is 11% manufacturing, their back orders printed at 32, 32. Remember that line that that separates expansion from contraction is 50. And the IFO out of Germany told you the recession is deepening. What's that reflection of? Not just Germany being in recession, but how slow China is. Germany's biggest trading partner. So the global impulse right now is disinflationary. That's yet another aspect. That's another feed that's disinflationary. We have global M2 that's contracting, contracting. I've got a a chart for that. It's, It's extraordinary to see this. I mean, look at the look at the global financial crisis in 2008. It was still positive. We're negative 3.4. Extraordinary what we're seeing. And it's only, you know, the ECB's non-reinvestment doesn't even begin until July the 1st. So there's going to be more liquidity pulled out of the system. Janet Yellen is no longer spending money out of the Treasury general account. She's refilling it. So the bump that we saw in M2 growth here in the United States in the month of May is being reversed in real time, which you see in the weekly data from the Fed. Other deposits liabilities has resumed its contraction. Because again, Janet Yellen is not pushing money into the US economy anymore. She's pulling money out. Is it being purchased by money market funds? Yes, but all you're doing is moving money from point A to point B. It's not going into the economy as it was when she was emptying out the nation's checking account. And you've got quantitative tightening going on in the background at the same time. You might still be you know, in the patriotic spirit and not pay attention to the, the Fed's balance sheet when it comes out the Thursday after, after July the 4th. You're going to see another $50 billion come off that balance sheet, which is now the lowest it's been since they started uh, quantitative tightening 
which means that all of the confused it's QE crowd uh, that called discount window uh, borrowing and the facility yeah, borrowing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's QE. It's Q. They're quiet now. It's crickets on my Twitter feed because all of that has been reversed and then some. Right. So this chart is definitely not a stimulative signal for the global economy. I, I for sure concede that, but it has so much to do with the central banking and, and the, the Federal Reserve. You know, in periods of quantitative easing, this will always go up, even when the economy is horrible. And usually the economy is horrible when the Fed's doing tons of QE, such as March 2020. And when it's quantitative tightening, which is quite rare, uh, you saw that in 2019, week three, it got very close to zero. Now it's negative. So mm-hmm. even though, and we talked about this before, you know, if you put this chart up, uh, relative, you know, going back to 1920, the only time it's been this this low is during the Great Depression. And again, I'm not saying that's a good sign, but in the Great Depression, there was no Fed balance sheet to to unwind, really. So this this can be very, uh, you know, there's a lot of mechanical things going on. Okay, so Daniel, what do you say to folks who say, you know, even though Fed's raising rates, even though uh, Fed's balance sheet is declining, liquidity is increasing. The stock market is going up, and you know, I've doing doing all this liquidity and uh, liquidity easing. QE is back. I mean, what's your view on that? Unless the definition of QE has changed, uh, we, we're not in a in a positive liquidity environment anymore. In fact, people who aggregate um, the Treasury General Account, the, the reverse repo facility, and the Fed balance sheet uh, that was going up uh, have now seen a full reversal. So why is the stock market going up? Well, a lot of it has to do right now with retail being hot and heavy in the stock market because you're seeing because of the white collar recession. In fact, if we could pull up job openings uh, and look at the type of job openings that have been hurt the most, this will help illustrate my point. This is a light cast data that shows minimal education required where job openings absolutely skyrocketed. That's why is it this one or another one. It's, it's the one on the right. Okay. So what you see with that orange line, that's your white collar recession. This is a this is benchmarked in January 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And your job postings in business and professional services are 35% lower than they were prior to the pandemic. Now, we know that if you were a home health worker or if you were in childcare or if you were bussing tables or a bartender, Anybody who was in the minimal education required bucket saw explosive wage inflation. And yet, as of June the 23rd, job postings for what were during the pandemic, the fastest wage growth industries, the lowest skilled industries are unchanged. We've fully gone 180 back to prior to the pandemic, nationwide across all industries and professions and levels of educational attainment, job postings are down 3.5% compared to prior to the pandemic. And that's what CFOs are also telling us. We need fewer workers. We're no longer having trouble sourcing workers. And that CFO survey was brand new. What is a problem? According to CFOs, the biggest delta, cash flow, cash flow access to credit. Monetary policy has, has has seen a massive increase in terms of when you're asked as a CFO, what's your biggest problem? What's the biggest issue facing your company? 
and the one that ranks the highest compared to from from the first quarter of 2023 to the to the second quarter of 2023 cash flow was the biggest mover after that it was monetary policy i'm showing that chart right right now um, so if you look at if you look at the very last line item it, that's not a typo liquidity and cash flow was not an issue at all it oh, wasn't wow. even on the radar i didn't see that wow in the okay. first quarter there is no orange bar yeah so you explode off the start off the starting block with liquidity and cash flow being prohibitive and look at monetary policy it it's worse now than it was and look at inflation look at what happened between the first quarter and the second quarter in terms of cost pressure and inflation it became a smaller problem health of the economy access to credit bigger problems wow this is this is a real whopper so danielle if the question is Recession was already last year, or we're in a recession, or recession is to come, or no recession. Real quick, what what would your answer be? I think my answer would be because of the magnitude of the revisions that I expect to payrolls, that the one thing keeping in this chart we don't have, but you will have it, and I will give it to you, and you can share it. What we saw in the revisions to GDP was consumption, spending. Now, what have households been doing into an in rising interest rate environment in variable rate instruments? They've been pulling money out of their homes very expensively. It doesn't bother. It's not that it doesn't bother them. They're having to do it, having to do it to monetize that home equity. What have they been doing with their credit cards? We can fill in that blank very easily, racking them up at record rates. And then you don't have a slide of this business income tax refunds, the employee retention credit. Right before we got on this podcast, I mean, five minutes before we got on this podcast, I was inside the IRS data. June's not finished yet. And usually there's a little bump at the end of the month. But what we know through the 28th is that the prior monthly record high, December 2022, $25.6 billion, getrefunds.com. December was your prior high, $25.6 billion in cash pumped into the U.S. economy, given to people who are spending it on services, taking vacations, putting their kids in first class. June's already surpassed $30 billion. Record month. So fiscal stimulus is from the CARES Act that was that was extended when Biden signed the, the, the in, into law in April of 2021. It was extended. $20 billion a month has now become 30. Those are your taxpayer dollars hard at work. Innovationrefunds.com. Guess where they advertise the most? CNBC, Bloomberg. They're all over the yeah. airways and they're soliciting people left and right. They collect 25 to 50, excuse me, 25 to 30%. So D Danielle, before you actually changed your view about Jay Powell and the rate, rate hikes, mm -hmm. uh, specifically about rate hikes, not about quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, but before we do, just really quickly, so uh, all the charts that folks have seen, if they're watching this on YouTube or if they've heard about, if they're listening to this other podcast, are from uh, QI Intelligence, your, your service. And most of them are actually from QI Pro, the institutional product. Mm -hmm. uh, normally, that, that costs a minimum of, of $4,000, depending on, you know, if a firm wants to use it, it's more. But, uh, you know, I, I managed to whittle you down uh, $1,000 off you can get if you use... Uh, code forward guidance or click on the link in the description and it's only growing for two weeks. So if you, you know, folks who wanted to 
uh, check out this this research service. Uh, but you know, they were looking for an opportunity. The opportunity is now. Uh, real quick before we you know talk about Powell, just tell us, give us a little bit of a taste of what folks can expect from uh, this institutional research product. What I will tell you about QI Pro um, is is the steadfastness of our publication schedule. We put out something in the morning called a quick quill. It helps you uh, position your portfolio based on what the retail client reads, what they don't get, and what they they howl for is like, well, how are we going to put that to work? We tell our professional clients how we're going to put that to work. We have a very robust and busy uh, Bloomberg chat room filled with institutional investors, other strategists, carefully chosen, but our professionals. I have a private Twitter feed. I don't post there very often, but I certainly post things there that I would never put in public. We have my flagship, the Weekly Quill, an intensive deep dive into you name it. My duty to Richard Fisher when I was his advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve was to cover the full spectrum of macroeconomics and the financial markets as they pertain to how monetary policy interacts with them. That's what I do. We have a huge professional client base of people in commercial real estate. I was at the forefront of the office sector being in the crosshairs in 2022. My clients were prepared for that. They were positioned for that, not after the fact, not after companies started mailing keys back to skyscrapers, back to their lenders. We went into this year saying, watch out, sell your industrial properties, position yourself. If Amazon and, and, and Walmart are reducing their industrial footprint, you should be right there with them not reading about it in 2024, but we talk about commercial real estate. I talk a ton about private equity, inflation, the labor market, and credit, 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 corporate credit, deep, deep, deep dives, whether it's, whether it's private credit, whether it's the leveraged loan market. And by the way, in Europe as well, we look at monetary policy around the globe. I've got great contacts in China. I write about the Chinese economy quite often. But QI Pro is, it's, we publish 13 times a week. Every Saturday morning, as soon as you're finished with your barons and your coffee, you get the Saturday morning intelligence briefing. That yeah, is the hardest the, working person in the, in the financial yes, uh, analysis yes. business. And yes, yeah, so you, you I forgot about the Bloomberg chat. Yes, yeah, so, so you get the quick bill, you get the QI Pro. And then if you have a Bloomberg terminal, you get that Bloomberg chat. And I've met and you'll know a lot of people in that chat. And uh, they, they, they are... They're no, they're no dummies. And you have full, full access to the, to the dashboard, um, the QI dashboard on you know on your laptop, um, on your phone. You have an access to every archive that exists. So it's 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 powerful. And and our clients tell me constantly, you do work that nobody else does. Yes. And so if you want to get access to this great research. Uh, use code guidance or click the link in the description to get $1,000 off. Again, that's $3,000 a year instead of $4,000. All right, Danielle, we've got five minutes left. Tell us how has your view on interest rates changed? Last time we said they could hike, but I don't think they're going to hike. There's no way they're going back to QE. They're, they're sticking with QT, Powell's, mm -hmm. they're sticking with his guns, but I don't think there's another high, rate hike in the pipeline. What has Powell said? What have you seen that has made you maybe change your mind? Well, I've seen him... Um... I've seen him paint the narrative decisively. So anybody who didn't believe him before he landed in Europe, they believe him now. Once he said, you know, we, we, we could see back-to-back -back hikes. That means that's code for saying July is in the bag, people. 
I've moved the discussion on to September. That's what I'm talking about right now. July is in the rearview mirror. And he's going to rely on that core inflation coming down in a very sticky fashion, right? Rents in New York just hit a record way past the rest of the nation where rents are already falling. Yep. But New York is 11% of shelter CPI. Jay Powell knows it. It's going to help him keep that inflation higher for longer, which is what he wants. The markets have completely priced out any cuts in 2023. And if you look at the chart that's never been published before, you see that in, um, in the rate hiking cycle that ended uh, January of 1981, this is prior to the double dip, uh, recession. Three months is the shortest amount of time that you saw between a pause and the next hike. Now, look at July of 2006. We, we, we didn't want to distort the scale. It was 9.42 years. It should not say percent, years, years before we saw the next rate hike. Extraordinary period of time after the financial crisis. And then you see Jay Powell's attempt, which started with, with Janet Yellen. But had he just paused for the one month, he would have, you, you wouldn't even be able to see it on this scale. You wouldn't be able to see one month on this scale. So I venture to say that, that it will end up being September, if not later, depending on what happens with this bankruptcy cycle and if credit remains well-behaved. And that's the biggest unknown. He enjoys watching one company at a time methodically go out of business. That's how you control the demolition. I don't know. I, I get what you're saying, but I don't know if he enjoys watching them go out of business. He wouldn't. He wouldn't say that. No, 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 no. That's, yeah. that, that's excuse me. He uh, he can better maneuver his goal of staying higher for longer if nothing big blows up, if the markets remain functional. So what does that mean? So July hike is in the bag when you said September. You think that's when the last hike will be? It sounds like it's potentially where the last hike will be. And given the fact that we foresee uh, core month over month, month over month prints coming down to 2% and 0.2% and staying there, at some point he'll be so close to 3% uh, that he won't be able to justify anymore saying, We've got to get to 2%. When you can see 2% over the horizon, you can't now. But I venture to say by September, especially with student loan payments kicking in in October, which is going to be a shock to the U.S. economy, that he's going to have a very, very, very hard time maintaining a rate hiking stance beyond September. Things can change. I changed. I didn't think he would, he would, he would raise uh, rates again after the June pause. But I think he's going to go in July. I think he's going to go in September. And I think then reality catches up with him. And so what this chart means, it took me a while to, to understand, is if you actually stop hikes, you've got, you know, you've got to wait two years, three years, nine years to hike again. So if Powell wants to tighten monetary policy and kill the Fed foot, his time, time is not on his side. So he's got to do it in July, in September, while core inflation is still high so he can justify it to his fellow FOMC members. That's what you're saying. I'm saying that. And right now, you know, he's had one more defection from the dot plot. He's lost Bostic, who's not a voter. But nonetheless, you now have three. You have Mary Daly, Austin Goolsby, and Raphael Bostic. 
from the Atlanta Fed who has said publicly in the last few days, I disagree with Powell. So he's got three dissenters. Even though Bostic can't dissent, he's not voting. Um, but Goolsby certainly can. Uh, Daly's not voting either. But you see that he's now got three people who are no longer part of his cohesive unit, which is why he went from saying an overwhelming majority to the to, to most members. He's changed. He's tweaked his verbiage a little bit from the press conference that followed the June pause to being an overwhelming majority of members of the committee felt that we should pause to most of us now think we should keep going. And that's because he's lost one more member of that committee. And so you're following what Powell is saying. So the last time we spoke, you were you had you mostly in the higher for longer camp, but you were in the longer camp. They wouldn't cut. You didn't feel so much about the higher, but now you you are uh, fully in the higher for longer camp. Danielle, thank you so much for for sharing your insights. As always, people can find your work on Twitter at Demartino Booth. And again, for folks who want to get that thousand dollar off to QI Pro, click the link in the description or use code guidance. Thanks again, Danielle, and thanks everyone for watching. Thank you.